catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Australian country township of Truro is located an hour's drive northeast of Adelaide, the capital city of the state of South Australia. Situated in the heartland of the state's expansive agricultural district, the hamlet of approximately 600 people sits just east of the world-renowned Barassa Valley wine region. Despite the welcoming hospitality, visitors find upon stopping in Truro, the terrain of the sea surrounding the town is anything but... A 15-minute drive east, paddocks of sparse, low-lying scrub and bushland occasionally give way to swampy areas. These floodplains are located near the aptly named Swamp Road, which runs off the Sturt Highway. Barbed wire fences stretch for miles along the side of the road. The final touch to somewhere that appears like a setting in a science fiction film. It was against this backdrop on April 25, 1978, that a couple were out mushrooming in a paddock approximately 100 meters off Swamp Road. Forging through the leaves and twigs underfoot, they found something that at first glance appeared to be a leg bone from a large animal, most likely a cow. It was a slightly unusual find, but with their expedition complete, the couple returned home. Something about the location of the bone was unsettling, The remote area where the couple had been mushrooming was not cattle grazing land. A few days later, unable to shake a feeling of unease, the couple returned to the site to investigate further. 
The leg bone was where they'd left it, but as they peered closer, they saw a shoe attached to one end. When police arrived on the scene, the grisly discovery was confirmed. The shoe attached to the end of the leg bone contained human skin and painted toenails. A search of the surrounding area found dried bloodstains on the ground, a discarded pair of women's jeans, a jumper, and a human skull. Forensics officers did what they could to piece together what might have occurred to the person whose remains had been found. But decomposition was so advanced that mostly only bones remained, and the cause of death was unable to be established. Dental records soon confirmed the remains as those belonging to 18-year-old Veronica Knight, who was reported missing in December 1976. The discovery was indeed concerning, and while there was the possibility that Veronica had met with foul play, there was nothing concrete at that stage to suggest she'd been murdered. And if so, by anyone in particular, Veronica had gone missing during the South Australian summer, which is typically hot, harsh, and unforgiving. If she somehow got lost or became disoriented in such an isolated area, it wasn't outside the realm of possibility for her to have collapsed from heat stroke or dehydration and died. That's what police felt, anyway. Veronica's death may simply have been an unfortunate accident of circumstance. Whatever the cause, it was a tragic end for a young woman who was just starting to make her way in the world. Veronica had survived a turbulent home life as a youngster. Her mother died shortly after she was born, and she was removed from her father's care due to his severe alcohol dependency. Veronica grew up in state and charitable institutions, including the well-known Minda Home in Brighton. But in 1974, things started to look up for the 16-year-old, Veronica had never had much stability in her life. The lack of educational opportunities affected her intellectual development, resulting in poor literacy. She left school to work for an organization specializing in employing people with disabilities. It was around this time that Veronica also met a benevolent and caring young couple through St. Bartholomew's church group, which she began attending. For the first time, she had some positive role models to look up to and rely on. She navigated her way through young adulthood. By the time she turned 18, Veronica wasn't the most worldly of teenagers. She was naturally trusting of strangers. But with her effervescent personality and extroverted nature, she was starting to find her feet. One of her favorite pastimes was baking. And though she didn't have much in the way of material possessions, her most prized was her sewing machine. In late 1976, Veronica was eagerly looking forward to Christmas and the holidays. She was planning to catch the train on Boxing Day to Melbourne, in the neighboring state of Victoria. The couple with whom she'd become close with in recent years had relocated there, and Veronica was looking forward to the visit. Since October 1976, she'd been staying at the Sutherland Lodge, a Salvation Army hostel in Adelaide's Angus Street. On the warm summer evening of December 23, 1976, Veronica and her best friend were shopping at the City Cross Arcade in Rundle Mall, an open-air, pedestrianized shopping precinct. It was two days before Christmas, with stores staying open at night for the first time. 
The mall was bustling with last-minute shoppers, taking advantage of extended trading hours. Amidst the dazzling spectacle of Christmas lights that twinkled up and down the mall, the girls were having a ball. Veronica had bought a new dress. During a break in their shopping, the two friends squeezed into an automatic photo booth to playfully capture memories of their night out. The girls eventually made their way to a bus stop in King William Street to catch a bus back to the hostel where they both lived. As the bus pulled away, Veronica jumped up in a panic, realizing she'd left the new dress she bought in the photo booth. Leaving her friend to catch the bus home alone, Veronica rushed back to the photo booth, but realized with disappointment that her package was gone. Thankfully, she had her purse, which contained $180. Later at the hostel, the 11.30pm curfew came and went, but there was no sign of Veronica. The 18-year-old was reported missing less than a day later by the matron of the hostel. But as was common at the time, police told her they wouldn't consider the report serious until Veronica had been missing for 24 hours. Given she made her plans known to travel to Melbourne, police surmised she'd simply made a last-minute decision to leave early and hitchhike, which was a common mode of transport. The couple who were expecting Veronica were, of course, worried when she failed to arrive on December 27th, as arranged. But more so that she'd failed to make contact advising of a change in plans. But as far as the police were concerned, Veronica was an adult. It wasn't up to them to monitor the whims of young women who could legally do as they pleased. Veronica's missing persons report ultimately wasn't considered to have involved foul play. It would be another year after her body was found, before the public would become aware of the true horror of what had unfolded on the outskirts of Truro in peaceful country Adelaide. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. The Best of Both Worlds South Australia and Adelaide are unique for numerous reasons. Prior to Federation in 1901, unlike other Australian colonies, South Australia wasn't founded on the backbreaking work of British and European convicts, serving sentences of transportation and hard labor. The traditionally conservative colony was established by free settlers, and the state evolved into a socially and politically progressive enclave. Fast forward a century and a half later, and by the late 1970s, the mid-20th century wave of British immigration had firmly established Adelaide as something akin to a large but sleepy, gentrified country town. The city's population of almost 950,000 people meant that Adelaide residents enjoyed all the benefits of a growing metropolitan center, along with the city's reputation for being safer than larger capital cities like Sydney or Melbourne. Things moved at a slower place in Adelaide. It wasn't the vibrant cosmopolitan center it is today, but it didn't have a chip on its shoulder without positioning itself as a rival to other state capitals. Of course, Adelaide hadn't been without its share of pain and tragedy up to this point. An intense amount of morbid curiosity had been generated surrounding two infamous child abductions that occurred in the laid-back city. The disappearance and presumed murders of Jane Arna and Grant Beaumont in 1996, as well as Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon in 1973, remain unsolved. Along with other heinous criminal acts in years to come, these crimes burrowed themselves deep within the Australian psyche. 
This led many to cultivate and perpetuate the claim that South Australia in general was the murder capital of Australia. This popular myth has since been debunked and is backed up by statistics, proving that such a claim is unfounded. But given the demographic spread and the number of violent murders and unsolved abductions in South Australia since the 1960s, it's not hard to see why the notion persists. As you've heard, the South Australian summer is long, dry, and oppressive. In Adelaide, and around the southern coastline, residents and tourists alike flock to the pristine beaches that offer some respite from the sweltering heat. But if you drive north of the city, the landscape is a different story. Leaving the outskirts of the city, the historic bluestone buildings give way to suburban and industrial sprawl. Aside from the wheat fields, the terrain further inland quickly becomes desolate and harsh. The grass, where there is any, is brown, not green. As you travel along the straight, flat road, the distance between towns become greater. And in between, there is no sign of human life as far as the eye can see. If you're unfamiliar with the area, the remoteness of this part of the state seems like the middle of nowhere and it's easy to feel completely cut off from civilization. And while red dirt and flat plains stretch for miles all the way to the horizon, whether in the pitch black of night or the blazing heat of a midsummer's day, there is nowhere to run if you need to make a hasty escape from something or someone. In the dead of night, the only light to show the way is the moon overhead. With no one around for miles, the silence is deafening. Part 2. Summer Nights 15-year-old Tanya Kenny was intelligent and capable. She was said to be a bit of a tomboy, but enjoyed spending time riding her bike with her younger brother as far as Adelaide foothills on the outskirts of the city. But as she grew into her teenage years and started attending St. Peter's Girls College, Tanya started to have conflict with her strict parents. As with many teens... She wanted more freedom than she was permitted. By late 1976, Tanya desperately wanted to join her friends, who were traveling down to the south coast to see in the new year. It was only a 90-minute drive away from the family home in the East Adelaide suburb of Stonyfell, but Tanya's parents were having none of it. Defying their wishes, Tanya went anyway. Following her trip south to Victor Harbor, Tanya proceeded to hitchhike north back towards Adelaide, then caught a bus from Moana to the city. Before Tanya returned home, she decided to stop by Rundle Mall on January 2, 1977, before heading back to her family. Tanya got off her bus around noon and was last seen in Flinders Street. Reports indicated that Tanya's parents weren't too worried when their daughter didn't return home that night figuring she decided to stay one more night with her friends. But when Tanya didn't show up the next day, her parents knew something was terribly wrong and reported their daughter missing to police. Tanya's family thereafter shied away from publicity, retreating from any sort of media attention. Juliet Makita was one of three children. Attending Martin Senior College, she came from an artistic and creative family of part Ukrainian background, who lived in the West Adelaide suburb of St. Peter's, 
known to her family and friends as Julie, the 16-year-old was close to her parents, who felt their daughter was intelligent, mature, and responsible. Before her older sister moved to Queensland, the girls enjoyed spending time at the Botanic Gardens together, and Julie always baked a birthday cake for her younger brother every year. Even though she was still a student, Julie was ambitious and had plans to attend university and become a doctor. Despite the freedom and independence, Julie enjoyed growing up. She knew her parents strongly disapproved about her hitchhiking everywhere. For this reason, Julie didn't tell her parents that she'd occasionally taken to accepting rides from strangers. On the evening of January 21, 1977, Julie finished her shift at her part-time job, selling jewelry on a street stall in the city. A male acquaintance met up with her, and the two walked to the central market, where Julie handed over the evening's takings to the jewelry stall owner. According to the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper, at around 8 p.m., Julie and her acquaintance made their way to a local pub for a game of pool. Around 9.30 p.m., Julie called her parents. She didn't want them to be alarmed that she wasn't home and asked if she could stay out a bit later. Her father, Mick, could hear background noise that satisfied him that Julie was indeed at the pub. He agreed that she could stay out, but had to be home by 11 p.m. Around 10.30 p.m., Julie's acquaintance walked her to her bus stop, where the pair bid goodnight and parted ways. As he walked away, Julie's acquaintance saw her talking to someone in a white Valiant station wagon that pulled over. He saw a man get out of the car, and Julie eventually got in. The next morning, when Julie wasn't home, her father was livid, but mainly concerned. It wasn't like his daughter to just not come home or fail to contact her parents if something had happened. Julie had recently failed to return home one night in January 1977, and had promised her parents she wouldn't do it again. This time, Julie's parents contacted her friends to see if they knew where she was, as well as Adelaide's hospitals. Perhaps Julie had been in an accident and was unable to call, but these inquiries yielded nothing, and it soon became clear she hadn't run away to visit her sister in Queensland. Now frantic, Julie's parents reported her missing to police, but they were shocked when their concerns were dismissed. Being told by one officer, girls of that age are running off all the time, She'll be back when the novelty wears off. Sylvia Pittman's parents had migrated to Australia from Austria, settling in the northwest Adelaide suburb of Taparu. 16-year-old Sylvia loved going out dancing with her friends and was an aspiring model who worked as a part-time shop assistant in a fashion store. Sylvia had run away once previously, ending up in a detention center in Melbourne. The experience terrified the young teen, who eventually made her way back home to the safety of her parents. Her father, Andreas, later told the Adelaide Advertiser newspaper that after Sylvia ran away the first time, she promised her parents she wouldn't do it again. In return, they provided her with more freedom. On February 6, 1977, Sylvia was waiting at Adelaide train station for her train home to arrive. Like Veronica Knight and Julie Makita before her, when Sylvia didn't come home, her worried parents reported her missing to the police. Officers weren't greatly concerned about a teen girl failing to return home a second time. 
but Andreas knew in the pit of his stomach that his daughter hadn't run away. 26-year-old Vicki Howe was recently separated mother of two who worked as a nurse's aide. Like Veronica Knight, Vicki hadn't had an easy life growing up in foster homes. She never knew her father. By early 1977, her marriage of seven years was over. She had moved into a flat with her boyfriend in the suburb of Coralta, in southwest Adelaide. But like her former marriage, this wasn't said to be a happy relationship either. On the evening of February 7th, Vicky left home and headed into the city and was last seen waiting near Adelaide Post Office in Victoria Square. When she didn't return home after several days, her boyfriend called one of Vicky's sisters, who reported her missing to police. 16-year-old Connie Iordanides was mainly known to her friends by the anglicized version of her surname, Connie Jordan, and lived with her family in the West Adelaide suburb of Brooklyn Park. On the evening of February 9, 1977, Connie told her parents that she was walking to her boyfriend's house a kilometer away and that the couple would then go to a drive-in movie. But as the Sydney Morning Herald reported, on that night, Connie actually caught a bus into the city instead. Connie had run away from home once before, in April 1976, escaping what she reported to others as an oppressive home environment. Much to her family's frustration, this resulted in the Department of Community Welfare becoming involved, placing Connie in a foster home and arranging for her to be prescribed with contraceptives. When Connie finally returned to the family home in late 1976, conditions were put in place by the department. One was that Connie was permitted to socialize with anyone she chose. The other was that she had unlimited freedom to go out any night of the week. When Connie didn't return home after her night out in February, her father rang around her friends, trying to ascertain her whereabouts. Connie had plans to catch up with a friend the following day, so there wasn't any reason for her not to return home. Connie's father waited several days before reporting his daughter missing, but police were yet to make a connection between her case and that of the five young women before her. Again, officers chose not to prioritize the report based on Connie's history. 20-year-old Deborah Lamb was engaged but lived at Windsor Gardens Caravan Park at the northwest outskirts of Adelaide. Deborah and her fiancé had a baby girl, but her parents felt she was too young to have a child. Following the birth, Deborah spent some time at a home for single mothers. She briefly returned to live with her parents in suburban Elizabeth in the north of Adelaide, but eventually gave her six-month-old daughter up for adoption in mid-1976. This issue caused considerable tension between Deborah and her parents, and she last spoke to them around September. Even though her family didn't consider her exceptionally worldly, Deborah enjoyed her own company and often went out by herself. In the early hours of February 12, 1977, Deborah was seen hitchhiking on West Terrace in the west of the city, near Hidden Inlay Street. She was reported missing, but again, police didn't pay much heed to a report about a woman who was legally able to go wherever she pleased. Seventeen girls and young women had disappeared in just over seven weeks, but police were yet to make a connection. In fact, the Adelaide Advertiser later reported that police at the time were of the view that Veronica, 
Julie, and Sylvia had simply run away. It didn't help that Vicki Howell's ex-husband told police that Vicki had run away several times during their marriage. The fact that Connie Jordan was known to the Department of Community Welfare didn't exactly galvanize a solid police response either, which angered Connie's father. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that he blamed the department for feeling pressured into giving Connie permission to go out unaccompanied. Overall, the missing girls' families knew their loved ones hadn't voluntarily disappeared. The one exception was Deborah Lamb's family, who didn't believe their daughter had met with foul play. But the evidence said otherwise. Since Deborah had disappeared, she hadn't claimed her unemployment benefit or touched her bank account. Little did police know that the person responsible was a prolific offender who had no concerns about being caught. Part 3. In the Dark Following the discovery of Veronica Knight's body in April 1978, Adelaide detectives finally made a connection between the missing girls. While investigating the murder of 19-year-old Lena Marciano, a month before Veronica's remains were found, Lena disappeared on her way to a dance class. Several days later, her body was found wrapped in a curtain at a rubbish dump on the northern outskirts of Adelaide. Lena had been bound, gagged, strangled, bludgeoned, and stabbed to death. Her brutal slaying would remain unsolved, but police decided it was time to launch a public appeal for information. Given a spate of further disappearances following Veronica Knight's death, in January 1979, at the behest of investigators, Julie Makita's family made national TV appearances in an attempt to breathe new life into the case. They also gave magazine and newspaper interviews, appealing for people to come forward. But disappointingly, this yielded nothing. Julie's father, Mick, later thought he saw his daughter walking along with a group of girls down the street in Sydney. But unfortunately, it was a case of mistaken identity. The pain continued for Makita's family, who received regular phone calls over the many months their daughter remained missing. One caller told them Julie was living in a commune. Another cruelly pretended to be their missing daughter, hoping that Julie would find her way back home. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that her mother left a cryptic note on the front door of the family home, telling Julie where the spare key was. Then, on April 15, 1979, a group of bushwalkers near Swamp Road, outside Truro, discovered more skeletal human remains. When police arrived, a search of the area yielded clothing and a 14-karat gold medallion on a necklace featuring an angel. The jewelry had been a gift to Sylvia Pittman from her grandmother eight years earlier. With Sylvia's remains identified through dental records, Police noted that her remains had been found less than a kilometer away from Veronica Knight's a year earlier. This was too much of a coincidence, and police launched a thorough search of the area. A team of around 90 officers, cadets, mounted police, and dog squad took up camp in the inhospitable terrain outside Truro. For days, they painstakingly conducted line searches on their hands and knees of a 20-kilometer area searching for evidence. On April 26th, a year and a day after Veronica had been found, police
police recovered a skull on the other side of Swamp Road, 100 meters west of the site of Sylvia's remains. Officers also found two sets of partially buried human remains. Police reopened 100 missing persons files to try and determine who the victim could be. Like Veronica, only dental records can confirm that the remains belong to Connie Jordan, who was found at the base of a tree, and Vicki Howell, whose right arm bones were found 130 meters away from the rest of her skeleton. In the days following the gruesome discovery, two discarded handbags were found approximately 4.5 kilometers east of the main search area, as well as a woman's sandal, underwear, watch, and necklace near Swamp Road. Further bones belonging to Veronica were also discovered. The close proximity of Connie and Vicky's remains to the road was extraordinary, given the original search area. Immediately following the discovery of Veronica's body spanned 600 meters in diameter. Police's worst fears were confirmed. A serial killer had been preying on teen girls and young women of Adelaide, but investigators noticed something curious. Just as quickly as young women had been going missing from the streets of Adelaide, over a relatively brief period, the disappearances seemed to grind to a halt in February 1977 when investigators trolled missing persons reports. The results weren't encouraging. At least three more young women were still missing and had disappeared around the same time as Veronica, Sylvia, Connie, and Vicky. Of course, the decline in missing persons reports was good news. But had detectives stumped, what was the reason behind the sudden stop? Had the killer relocated? Was he in jail? The answers to these questions and more were demanded by both local and national media. To make matters worse, the residents of Truro found the unwelcome media attention intrusive. Like the tiny hamlet town of Snowton, a two-hour drive north of Adelaide which would 20 years later become forever synonymous with the sickening discovery of numerous bodies and barrels in a disused bank vault. Truro suffered the fate of forever being linked to horrific murders, which had nothing to do with the town. Police started to look at previous offenders, especially those convicted of violent offenses against women, who had been released around late 1976. Investigators further narrowed the list of men living in Adelaide, who had either returned to jail or died in early 1977. And that was when they found Christopher Worrell, a convicted violent sex offender who had been released from jail two months prior to Veronica's disappearance. Christopher was born on January 17, 1954, and initially raised by his grandmother following the death of his father. While Christopher was still a young child, not much more is known about Christopher's childhood, but when he was six years old, his mother remarried, and the blended family welcomed another son several years later. Christopher's stepfather was generally reported to be somewhat of a domineering figure, while his mother took a more passive role in the relationship and parenting. After relocating several times due to his stepfather's work with the Royal Australian Air Force, the family made their home. Eden Hills, south of Adelaide. By his late teens, Christopher had followed in his stepfather's footsteps and joined the RAAF. His service took him coast to coast across Australia, from Victoria to Perth, but he was eventually discharged on Western Australia 
due to being incompatible with service life. In March 1974, 20-year-old Christopher picked up a 20-year-old hitchhiker. After driving the woman to a deserted sports ground, he attempted to rob her before threatening her with a knife if she told anyone. Thankfully, the young woman reported the distressing incident to the police. As Christopher had no prior convictions, he received a good behavior bond and a two-year suspended sentence for armed robbery. But within a month, he was arrested for attempted rape and indecent assault after gagging a woman and tying her hands behind her back. Christopher received six years in prison, the judge remarking at sentencing that the young man was a miserable and contemptible creature, a depraved and disgusting human being. Christopher was released on parole in October 1976, but only four months later, on February 19, 1977, both he and a female companion were killed in a car accident on Prince's Highway near Kingston. In the southeast of the state, Christopher had died only a week after Deborah Lamb had been reported missing. That was when the disappearances stopped. Police again turned to the public to elicit further information in the hope it would lead to the breakthrough they needed. In late April 1979, the South Australian government and the Adelaide Advertiser offered a combined reward of $30,000, which was eventually increased to $40,000. And then the call came. A man contacted police, telling them they may want to talk to Christopher's former girlfriend, Amelia, whom he'd been dating briefly at the time of his death. In May 1979, Amelia divulged to police that at the wake following Christopher's funeral, over two years earlier, a friend of his asked Amelia if she knew about the autopsy, which showed that Christopher had prior bleeding on his brain. The friend posited that this could have been the cause of Christopher's unpredictable and volatile moods, going on to say that Christopher had to die. Otherwise, he couldn't have been stopped. Christopher's friend revealed to Amelia a horrifying story prefacing it by saying he and Christopher had done something terrible. Confided in Amelia that Christopher picked up girls off the street and raped and strangled them before dumping their bodies out at Truro. According to Amelia, Christopher's friend justified the murders by describing the victims as rags weren't worth anything to us. We had to do them in so they wouldn't point the finger at us. When police asked Amelia why she hadn't come forward earlier, she explained that she'd wrestled with her decision. Besides, Christopher, whom his friend insisted was the mastermind and the supposed sole killer, was dead. He couldn't be held accountable. The murders had stopped anyway. Despite this delay, police realized how lucky they were that a member of the public had come forward with such valuable information. It certainly corresponded with the locations where Veronica, Sylvia, Connie, and Vicky's remains were discovered. Amelia told police that the name of the man who shared the sickening story was James Miller. Part 4. It's Always the Quiet Ones The eldest of six children, James Miller was born on February 2, 1940, originally known as Melvin Eust. He later changed his name to the more pedestrian-sounding James Miller. Even as a child, James had a history of disciplinary problems which included committing petty criminal offenses. At the age of 11, he was sent to McGill Reform School, 
When he left McGill as a young adult, he drifted around Australia, periodically taking up seasonal laboring work. But thanks to his passive demeanor, he had no strong friendships, no meaningful education or skills to help him secure gainful employment. As a result, James spent most of his adult life in and out of jail for theft offenses, as well as breaking and entering, receiving more than 30 convictions. James first met Christopher Worrell when both men were in Yatla Jail, where James was serving a three-month sentence for breaking and entering. Despite the 15-year age gap, the pair developed a close bond. James, who was tall, thin, and balding, quickly became enamored with the confident, striking-looking Christopher. The men were soon sharing a cell. James had known for some time that he was gay, but he had learned to hide his sexual orientation for fear of reprisal or worse. Christopher didn't seem to mind, though. James was eventually released from jail, but despite regaining his freedom, he felt lost without Christopher by his side. James soon committed another theft and attempted to sell stolen goods, landing an 18-month sentence. James got his wish and was reunited with Christopher in jail. In early 1976, James was again released and moved in with one of his sisters and her family in the suburb of Woodville, in the northwest of Adelaide. Nine months later, Christopher was also out of jail, having been granted early parole based on good behavior. Reunited, the two men spent all their free time together. Though this appeared to benefit Christopher far more than it did James, the men hit the city bars, pubs, and clubs most nights, drinking and carousing, which most often resulted in Christopher going home with a girl. James always returned home alone, dejected. James had learned not to seek out the company of other men for more than friendship, lest it attract unwanted attention in what was still a highly conservative time. But despite himself, James found himself falling deeply in love with Christopher. James longed for the object of his affections to lavish the same attention upon him as the young women of Adelaide received when Christopher spotted someone he decided he simply had to have. During this time, Christopher's sexual proclivities also saw him seeking out and consuming a large amount of pornographic material with explicit BDSM content. This appealed to Christopher's strong rape fantasies, including the use of rope bondage. The book The True Row Murders by Ryan Green notes that by late 1976, Christopher was working for a dry cleaner and living with his grandmother as part of his parole conditions. However, by early 1977, both men had moved in together to a flat in the north of Adelaide, were also working together, had only counsel as laborers. On the surface, it seemed as though both were finally on the straight and narrow, but the reality was very different. Christopher and James had taken to frequenting gay bars in the city to take advantage of patrons. Author Ryan Green explains how the men's ruse was to tempt older gay men, clearly had money to spend, into coming home with them. At first glance, James appeared meek and non-threatening and was the perfect cover for luring unsuspecting men home, where both he and Christopher would rob and then assault them to ensure they wouldn't make a report to police. The racket was brought to a swift halt when word got around amongst the gay community. Christopher and James soon found themselves banned from entering any gay venue in Adelaide. 
The power dynamics of the men's relationships intensified. James was totally captivated by Christopher, who was fit, toned, had black shoulder-length hair, and a dazzling smile. His natural charisma gave him the gift of the gab, especially when it came to women. By this stage, the men's relationship was that of a dominant and submissive. Christopher still enjoyed reading his BDSM magazines, and James performed oral sex on him while he did so. But the relationship was volatile. Christopher could be silent and brooding, was hot-headed, prone to angry outbursts and flying into a rage, thanks to mood swings and a hair-trigger temper. Eventually, the sexual aspect of the men's relationship waned, and they ceased engaging in sexual contact. But the pair continued to maintain a close friendship. James later claimed the pair was as close as brothers. Christopher preferred pursuing women for casual sex, and his insatiable desire to seek out more frequent sexual encounters increased. The men purchased a 1969 Valiant station wagon, with James behind the wheel. They began driving around Adelaide in the evenings and on their days off, looking for girls who caught Christopher's eye. Once a girl had been lured into the vehicle thanks to Christopher's effortless charm, they would drive to a secluded area where James would go for a walk to give Christopher privacy with his latest conquest. When the act was finished, the men would drive the young woman back to Adelaide and drop her off. Most of the time, the young women were consenting, but as time went on, the men reportedly found fewer willing to engage in such activities. With the information from Amelia, police set about tracking down 38-year-old James, who by now was drifting around the Adelaide area, sleeping rough. Undercover officers placed him under surveillance, bringing him in for questioning on May 23rd. 1979. Police had to be mindful of how they conducted the interview. At this stage, the only lead they had was hearsay. There was no direct evidence linking James to any of the crime scenes or abductions of young women from Adelaide, who were still listed as missing. The best police could hope for was a confession, but if detectives got James offside and he refused to talk, the murders would likely remain unsolved. James initially denied having any knowledge of the incidents in question, even claiming he wasn't sure he even knew anyone named Amelia. After James begrudgingly acknowledged that he had met Amelia through Christopher, he suggested that she was only motivated by the substantial reward, which was on offer. But James was staunch in his denial of any knowledge or involvement in the disappearances of any young women found dead outside Adelaide or any that were still missing. When it came to the details surrounding Christopher's death, police learned that on the weekend of February 19, 1977, Christopher, James, and a female friend named Debbie were taking a road trip to Mount Cambier. The purpose of the trip was to take Debbie's mind off a recent relationship breakup, but the day after the trio had set off, Christopher's mood darkened. He'd been drinking alcohol since early that morning. By the afternoon, was surly and aggressive. It was decided that it was better for all involved if the group headed back to Adelaide. Christopher insisted on driving, but his lowered inhibitions and bad temper caused him to speed and drive recklessly. Suddenly, without warning, the vehicle suffered a blowout. The station wagon veered onto the opposite side of the road, towards oncoming traffic. Trying to steer himself, 
James and Debbie out of danger, Christopher drove the vehicle off the side of the road. The station wagon rolled several times down an embankment, throwing all three out the open windows. Christopher and Debbie were pronounced dead at the scene. James was concussed and broke his shoulder blade. Aside from some pornographic magazines found amongst the wreckage, there was nothing at the crash site to indicate that either Christopher or James had been abducting, raping, and murdering young women from Adelaide. At Christopher's funeral, James had been visibly overwrought with emotion, fell into depression afterwards due to the loss of his best friend and one-time lover. And the weeks afterwards, James was so overwhelmed with grief, he stopped working and paying rent, eventually being evicted from the flat he'd shared with Christopher. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. As questioning continued in the interview room, James realized that the police weren't going to let it go. He was adamant he didn't do anything wrong or have any involvement in killing anyone and that protecting Christopher was his only concern. Interviewing detectives used James' feelings for Christopher to their advantage, gently explaining it must have been difficult for James to answer questions about his late friend with whom he'd been so close. The strategy paid off. After six hours of interviewing, police decided to charge James with the murder of Veronica, Sylvia, Connie, and Vicky. He was being led to the cells when he suddenly said, There's three more of them. I can show you where to find them telling police that he should have told the truth from the start. It was late at night by this stage, but a police escort set off for Truro. In the frosty night air, James confirmed the burial sites for the four bodies that had already been recovered. The police convoy continued on through the pitch black of night to five kilometers past Swamp Road. 
James directed police to a shrub near a rundown farmhouse. To the remains of Julie Makita, who was found lying curled up on the ground. Police then escorted James to the remote port Gawler Beach, a 45-minute drive northwest of Adelaide on the coast. He directed officers through a labyrinth of tracks to the body of Deborah Lamb, buried in a sandy grave. The last stop was Dean Rifle Range, near Wingfield, in the north of Adelaide, where Christopher and James had buried the clothed body of Tanya Kenny, under about 30 centimeters of sand. Beside a wired fence, running along a dirt track, police noted that despite the darkness and inhospitable terrain, especially at Port Galler, James was confident in gaining his bearings and directing investigators in a way that only someone who was familiar with those areas could. Upon arriving back at the police station, the full story unfolded. James told police that he was generally behind the wheel of the station wagon with Christopher in the passenger seat, trawling the streets of Adelaide at night, scanning passerby for young women Christopher liked the look of. When Christopher spotted a target, James would park the vehicle. Christopher would saunter up to the young woman engage her in friendly conversation, making her feel instantly at ease. James maintained that after a good amount of flattery and humor, it didn't take much convincing from Christopher for young women to agree to get in the station wagon. On occasion, James would pretend he was Christopher's father to provide reassurance to the young women. Both men would sweet-talk their prey into going for a drive to isolated areas north of Adelaide. To start with, most of the young women were receptive, but as time went on, Christopher wanted to pick up girls more often. It was only a matter of time before he encountered girls who resisted and struggled against his advances. Instead of letting the women go, Christopher raped them. When this occurred, James managed to calm the distressed women down and in a fatherly manner, discouraged her from making a report to the police. James indicated to police that this scenario played out on multiple occasions for Veronica Knight's abduction and murder, claiming he had no idea that Christopher's predilection would develop into a situation where he was brutally killing young women. James claimed that after each murder, Christopher would immediately become moody and withdrawn, almost enveloped by a darkness, which James found frightening. The next day, the sullenness was gone. Christopher was back to being his jovial self, and it was as if the events the night before had never happened. The following account of the seven murders is based solely on James' versions of events, as he was the sole surviving witness. It's all police initially had to go on. On December 23, 1976, Christopher and James were out on the prowl. Christopher instructed James to let him out of the station wagon, drive around the city, and return a short while later to allow Christopher to wonder amongst the crowds, find a girl to chat up. As James approached the majestic hotel on King William Street, Christopher was chatting to Veronica Knight. He offered her a lift home, and she accepted. James told police they drove to Windy Point and the Adelaide Foothills. After stopping the vehicle, James went for a walk, and Christopher got Veronica into the back seat. When James returned to the station wagon around 20 minutes later, he found Veronica dead on the floor. She'd been bound with rope, raped and strangled, 
I was fully clothed. Christopher was sitting in the front with the windows wound down. James claimed that when Christopher told him he'd killed Veronica, James responded angrily. But Christopher retaliated, pulling a knife on James, pressing it against his throat, and threatening to kill him. To show James he was serious, Christopher told him that while he was stationed in Perth, with the RAAF, he'd murdered some hitchhikers. James backed down, and Christopher directed him to drive towards Truro. When they arrived, the station wagon lumbered along Swamp Road until Christopher instructed James to pull over. The men dumped Veronica's body in the scrub and covered it with foliage before driving back to Adelaide. On the morning of January 2nd, 1977, James let Christopher out at the end of Rundle Mall and did a quick lap of the city. When he returned, Christopher was talking to Tanya Kenny. James pulled over, and the pair got into the station wagon. They drove to James' sister's former home in Woodville, which was now unoccupied. Christopher explaining to Tanya he had to pick up some clothes. Christopher invited Tanya inside, while James stayed in the vehicle. After a short while, James heard a woman's stifled scream, then saw Christopher come back out to the station wagon, requesting assistance. James told police when he went inside the house, he saw Tanya's lifeless body lying on the floor. She was bound, and her mouth had been covered with a makeshift gag in the form of a large band-aid. She had been strangled by Christopher using a thin ligature, but what the murder weapon was, James couldn't really tell. Again, James claimed Christopher became confrontational, threatening to kill him if he didn't have help to dispose of Tanya's body. The men stored Tanya's fully clothed body in a cupboard at the property and left. They returned under the cover of darkness to retrieve it without attracting attention. After placing Tanya's body in the boot of the vehicle, they drove to Dean Rifle Range near Wingfield, where she was dumped in a shallow grave. The men had dug earlier that day after Tanya was killed. James claimed that as the pair drove back into town, he raised the issue of Christopher perhaps consulting a doctor, see if there was a medical reason behind his desire to rape and kill women. Christopher retorted that James should mind his own business. On the evening of January 21st, Julie Makita was waiting on the stairs of the Ambassador Hotel on King William Street near her bus stop. When Christopher approached her, offering a ride home, Julie accepted. Christopher convinced the teenager that before she was due home, they should go up to Pork Wakefield, an hour's drive northwest of Adelaide. James eventually pulled the station wagon to a stop off Port Wakefield Road and sat in the vehicle while Christopher forced Julie into the back seat where he tied her up. James told police he then walked to a nearby petrol station to buy cigarettes, but heard some noises in the distance and turned around. He saw Julie had fallen out of the vehicle onto the ground and was struggling against her restraints. She staggered to her feet and ran into the blackness of the night. Desperately trying to escape, but Christopher was right behind her, eventually catching her and forcing her to the ground. He kicked the teenager in the stomach before straddling her and strangling her with a length of rope. James told police that his attempts to pull Christopher off of Julie were futile saying Christopher again threatened to kill him. James decided to go for another brief walk, 
When he returned, Christopher had dragged Julie's body into the back of the station wagon and covered it with a rug. The men drove to Truro, where they dumped Julie's body near an old farmhouse, concealing her remains with foliage, before driving back to Adelaide. On February 6, 1977, Christopher approached Sylvia Pittman as she waited for her train at Adelaide Railway Station. The attractive young man offered to take Sylvia home, so she willingly got in the station wagon, which James was driving. The group drove to Wingfield, where James again parked the car and went for a walk, leaving a vulnerable Sylvia with Christopher. As the previous victims, Christopher bound and raped Sylvia and strangled her with her pantyhose. When James returned around 20 minutes to a half hour later, he found Sylvia's fully clothed body lying face down, partially concealed by a rug. James once again helped Christopher dispose of Sylvia's body near Truro. James told police that the following day, Christopher called him, advising him to pick him up from the Adelaide post office around 7 p.m. When James arrived, he saw Vicky Howell talking to Christopher. The young woman willingly got into the station wagon. Christopher directed James to head towards New Ryutpa, about an hour north of Adelaide and a 10-minute drive from Truro. James claimed he felt Vicky was the kind of person who might be able to quell Christopher's moodiness. More importantly, he hoped that Christopher's encounter wouldn't result in a similar outcome as the previous victims. As James drove the group along the Barossa Valley Highway, Christopher ordered him to pull over. James went for a walk in a bathroom break, some distance away from the road. When he returned to the station wagon, he was relieved to discover Christopher and Vicky chatting happily. So James told police he went for another walk, but upon his return, he was horrified to realize that Vicky was dead in the back seat. She'd been strangled with her own pantyhose, and her body was partially covered with a blanket. Despite James again finding Christopher seething, he confronted him about what had occurred. Unusually, instead of Christopher responding with his typical threats, James claimed his young companion said nothing. The men drove Vicky's body to Truro and dumped her in the bush. James told police that on February 9, 1977, he and Christopher were again driving around the city. At one point, the police pulled the men over, and while James was issued a defect notice on the station wagon, Christopher noticed Connie Jordan standing on the footpath. After police had driven away, Christopher told James to drive up to where the teenager was standing, where Christopher approached Connie and offered her a lift home. It wasn't long after Connie climbed into the station wagon that she felt something was off. It wasn't until it was too late that she realized that the vehicle was heading in the opposite direction to her house. James drove the group to Wingfield, where Christopher forced a terrified Connie into the back seat, while also threatening James that he should leave. James went for his customary walk, but when he returned, Connie had been raped and strangled by Christopher. Again, the men drove to Truro to dispose of Connie's fully clothed body, concealing it in the bush. Instead of driving back to Adelaide, the men instead drove to Victoria Park Racecourse, where they slept in the station wagon overnight. On February 12, 1977, James and Christopher were driving around near the pinball arcades 
near City Bowl in the early hours of the morning. When the men saw Deborah Lamb hitchhiking on the West Terrace, they pulled over so Christopher could strike up a conversation and offer her a ride, which she accepted. This time, the group headed to the beach at Port Goller. James told police that once he parked the vehicle, he went for a walk. This time when he returned, there was no sign of Deborah at all. Instead, James claimed he saw Christopher using his foot to nudge sand into a hole in the ground. James' account of his conversation with Amelia at the wake following Christopher's funeral was conflicting. James told police that when he tried to unburden himself and explain to Amelia what had happened, she instructed him to keep quiet never speak of it again to anyone, saying she wouldn't have Christopher's memory tarnished. James was adamant that Christopher was solely responsible for raping and murdering each of the young women. He maintained that he only participated under duress out of fear for his own life. After all, James claimed that when he tried to intervene or resisted Christopher's demands to comply with instructions, his friend became confrontational there was nothing stopping Christopher from killing James and disposing of his body in the same location as a young woman he'd brutally murdered. Out in the remote South Australian bush, no one would ever come looking for James if they didn't know he was missing. What would become the biggest murder search excavation in South Australian history, earth digging equipment was brought in to move 30,000 tons of sand to recover Deborah Lamb's remains. Unlike the other victims, her body and clothing were largely intact, despite the advanced state of decomposition. Deborah was lying on her right side, and her legs bent at the knees. Both her hands and feet had been bound with nylon rope. A keepsake containing the photos of her two children were found underneath her body. She had been raped before being strangled. Her pantyhose wrapped around her mouth seven times. Later forensic evidence which found sand and shell grit in Deborah's lungs, suggested she was buried alive. However, the pantyhose found wrapped around her mouth could also have caused her to die from asphyxiation. Tragically, right up until Deborah's body was discovered, her parents had believed, hope against hope, that their daughter had simply moved away to make a fresh start. But it wasn't to be. Police didn't buy James' version of events, that he was simply a bystander and an unwilling accomplice who was too scared to intervene in the killings. Nor did they believe that all seven victims had voluntarily agreed to accept the offer of a ride home, let alone driving to secluded locations with men they'd just met, one of whom was significantly older. Many of the victims, if not all, had other plans on the evenings they were abducted more tellingly, James had prior detailed knowledge of the Truro area, which contradicted his versions of events that he was the driver, with Christopher navigating. James' account didn't ring true. If he'd really been as reluctant to participate as he claimed, there were at least six lives that could have been saved. But each time, he failed to take any steps to prevent more young women from losing their lives. He was charged with three additional murders and didn't apply for bail. Part 5. It Wasn't Me Committal proceedings commenced at Adelaide Magistrates Court in September 1979. 
Amelia appeared before the court, testifying about the conversation she'd had with James at the wake, following Christopher's funeral, stating that James had offered to drive her to see the bodies if she didn't believe him. When it came time for Sylvia Pittman's mother to give evidence, Sylvia's father, Andreas, wept from the back of the court as he loudly cursed his daughter's killer. Miller, damn you. I shall never forget your face. You shall live in agony like we do. Deborah Lamb's mother, Rhonda, was so distraught during proceedings that she collapsed after giving evidence. Julie Makita's father, Mick, spoke of his regret, telling the court, I blame myself that I let her come home on the bus alone, but we thought that Adelaide was a safe city. On February 1980, James stood trial for all seven murders, to which he pleaded not guilty. Of course, the fact that the only information available, accounting for the last known movements of the seven murder victims, came solely from James, was a convenient defense. But to complicate matters, some of the information in his original confession conflicted with the statement he later gave in court. Media and public interest in the macabre case had reached fever pitch, rivaling that which had occurred following the discovery of Sylvia, Connie, and Vicky's bodies. But this contrasted starkly with the absence of public outcry about young women being snatched off the street by sadistic sexual predators. An inflammatory editorial in the Adelaide Advertiser only served to fuel the victim-blaming narrative. It is clearly the duty of the parents of girls, particularly the naive, the gullible, and the misguidedly adventurous, to impress upon them the dangers of walking alone in the streets at night and accepting lifts and cars offered by people unknown to them. Girls who tend to be free with their favors are committing no offense by behaving as they choose, but they must realize that in doing so, they are exposing themselves to mortal danger. The fact that the young women had by all accounts willingly got into the vehicle with strange men and then been driven some distance outside Adelaide into the bush meant that the media reports focused on how the victims had brought the circumstances upon themselves. As Christopher would also never be brought to account for his role in the murders, it appeared to the victims' families that this aspect of their ordeal was a case of out of sight, out of mind. The prosecution told the court that James participated in a joint enterprise, luring young women into the station wagon for purposes of raping and then murdering them to avoid identification. No rapist or murderer could have had a more faithful or obliging ally. You will never know the truth, but have no doubt that this is a horrible truth that these young women were murdered because they were going to point the finger at the young man who tied them up and sexually abused them. They could also point the finger at the older man who ignored their plight and their terror. The man assists another by driving him to a place where a girl is going to be raped and killed, then he is guilty of murder. The defense portrayed James as just as much a victim as Christopher's, as the young women who had been brutally murdered. They maintained that James had no prior knowledge or reason to suspect that any of the victims would be murdered. Their argument was that James only participated out of fear he would be killed himself if he didn't comply in Christopher's demands. The defense rejected the assertion that James was involved in joint enterprise, maintaining that Christopher was the only one who had the desire to kill. 
For James, it was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and finding it impossible to extricate himself from Christopher's spell and intimidation. The defense also claimed that despite the lack of direct evidence linking James to the crimes, he was the only remaining avenue police had to hold someone accountable. Christopher was dead, and now James was unfairly being made the scapegoat. James himself testified that his sole role was chauffeur and mug. He explained that he told Christopher's girlfriend Amelia that he felt powerless to stop Christopher from raping and killing young women. In James' estimation, unless Christopher died, the abductions and murders wouldn't have stopped. James denied having any suspicion that Christopher intended to murder the unsuspecting victims, claiming that there were occasions in between where a young woman was picked up but not murdered. But on March 12, 1980, after deliberating for eight hours, the jury found James guilty of the murders of Sylvia Pittman, Julie Makita, Vicki Howell, Connie Jordan, Tanya Kenny, and Deborah Lamb. He was found not guilty of the murder of Veronica Knight on the basis that the jury believed James didn't know that Christopher tended to kill their first victim. Before his sentence was handed down, James was asked if he had anything to say, to which he replied, Nothing, except I am not guilty. He received six life sentences to be served consecutively, with no parole. Despite his claim that he didn't touch any of the victims before they died, James had been found culpable through both his presence at each of the scenes and participation in helping Christopher dispose of the bodies. James appealed his conviction to the South Australian Supreme Court, buoyed by the views of the South Australian Chief Justice, who felt James hadn't received a fair trial. The defense argued that at the time James was charged, police did not have the power to take him from the watch house to the crime scenes to assist with the investigation. However, in May 1980, the appeal was dismissed. Despite finding that police had acted unlawfully, the court found that the detective's actions were justified on the basis of the magnitude of the case and that James offered to show police where the bodies were dumped. The balance of the competing public interests lead firmly to the conclusion, in our judgment, that the police officers' infringements are dwarfed by the enormity of the crimes, which they were then in the course of investigating. Author Paul Kidd reported that following the decision, James told the media, They can give me life for knowing about the murders and not reporting them, but they charged me with murder as a payback for not informing on Christopher. It's a load of bullshit. At least one of the jurors at my trials knows the truth. In 1987, the juror paid a couple of hundred dollars out of his own pocket to help hire a lawyer to petition the Attorney General for a retrial. If a juror does this, he must have a fair idea of what really happened. The little sympathy there may have been for James from the public quickly evaporated when he later stated in an interview, Chris was my best friend in the whole world. If he had lived, maybe 70 would have been killed, and I wouldn't have ever dobbed him in. The self-serving nature of James' motivations was now truly evident. By 1999, new legislation had opened the door for James to apply to have a non-parole period set. In February the following year, the Supreme Court granted him a non-parole period of 35 years to be applied 
retrospectively, making him eligible for parole in 2014. Two months later, James was refused leave to appeal the same non-parole period, and as it turned out, he wouldn't live to see parole anyway. James had previously been diagnosed with hepatitis C and reoccurrent prostate cancer, later metastasized to his lungs. In October 2008, a 68-year-old convicted killer died of liver failure. The daughter of the seventh victim, Deborah Lamb, who was adopted out to another family as a baby, only found out the shocking truth about her birth mother as an adult. Upon hearing the news of James' death in jail, Deborah's daughter told the Adelaide Advertiser, his death is a massive relief. There will never be an end to the evil that he did, because I don't have my mother. But is it the end of a dark chapter and the beginning of a new one? Julia Makita's father, Mick, told the Sydney Morning Herald, To my family, I don't think it means anything, other than the fact that he's dead. Julie's mother, Anne Marie, set up an organization to support victims of crime and wrote a book about her struggle entitled, It's a Long Way to Truro. Proceeds from the sale of the book fund a scholarship in Julie's name. Like many of the victims' families, Anne-Marie battled with Julie's loss every day and at one point almost ended her own life. Anne-Marie described living with the ongoing pain of her daughter's absence to the Sydney Morning Herald. I lived behind glass in a world of fire and looked out to people who moved and spoke in a soundless trance. Could not hear my screaming. Having one family experience such deep grief over the sadistic cruelty of two men is tragic enough. But knowing that six other families also had to live with the same suffering is truly heartbreaking. Unfortunately for the people of Adelaide, it wouldn't be the last time the city would be rocked by a case of brutal serial killings. But that's a story for another day. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.